just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. This morning, I had medical student OB simulations and we covered shoulder dystocia. Of course, a topic intimately related to shoulder dystocia is fetal macrosomia. So I figured since the college released a new practice bulletin in January of 2020, which was practice bulletin number 216, I thought it'd be a great idea to review macrosomia in this podcast. So get ready. Here we go. Two terms were applied for excessive fetal growth, large for gestational age or LGA and macrosomia. Large for gestational age generally implies a birth weight equal to or more than the 90th percentile for a given gestational age. But the term macrosomia implies to growth beyond an absolute birth weight. Historically, that's 4,000 grams or in some circles, 4,500 grams, regardless of the gestational age, although establishing a universally accepted definition for macrosomia has been challenging. The risk for morbidity for infants and women when birth weight is either LGA or between 4,000 grams and 4,500 grams is more than that of the general OB population, and it increases rapidly when the birth weight exceeds 4,500 grams. In general, researchers and authors and even clinicians divide macrosomia into three categories, each with differing types and levels of risk. The first category is between 4,000 to 4,500 grams. The second is between 4,500 and 5,000 grams. And then the third, logically, is over 5,000 grams. Women with gestational diabetes or obesity have higher rates of LGA newborns. In a study of nearly 10,000 women, the rate of LGA newborns without diabetes was about 8% in normal weight women, but it was almost 13% in obese women. In women with gestational diabetes, the rates were 13.6% in normal weight women, but it increased to 22% in obese women. A variety of maternal factors predispose a newborn to macrosomia, including constitutional factors, pre-existing diabetes and gestational diabetes, maternal pre-pregnancy obesity, excessive weight gain, and abnormal fasting and postprandial glucose levels. A prior history of a macrosomic newborn also increases the risk of occurrence. And another factor is post-term pregnancies. All right, so that's the clinical pearl. You got to watch those post-term pregnancies. Gestational age increases birth weight and the risk of macrosomia. Among all women in the U.S. in 2014, the risk of birth weight more than 4,500 grams increased from 1.3% at 39 to 40 weeks of gestation up to about 3% when gestational age exceeded 41 weeks. Probably the best known risk factor for fetal macrosomia is maternal hyperglycemia. Maternal hyperglycemia increases the risk of macrosomia because when maternal glucose passes through the placenta, it can lead to fetal hyperglycemia with fetal release of insulin, insulin-like growth factors, and growth hormone. This, in turn, can lead to increased fetal fat deposition and larger fetal size. Okay, now here's another good clinical pearl. Even though you need two abnormal values on the traditional three-hour or the two-step 
glucose tolerance test to be called gestational diabetes, it's been found that having a fasting blood glucose level or any abnormal value on abnormal glucose tolerance testing has been associated with macrosomia, but the fasting glucose level was more strongly associated. So even if there's one abnormal value on the three-hour GTT, it still increases the risk for possible macrosomia. Remember that anthropomorphic studies suggest that macrosomia produced by maternal glucose intolerance is different from macrosomia associated with other predisposing factors. So newborns who are macrosomic because of maternal glucose intolerance, either because of a true diagnosis of glucose intolerance by just one abnormal value on the GTT or true gestational diabetes, these newborns tend to have more total body fat, larger shoulder and upper extremity circumferences, higher upper extremity skin fold measurements, and smaller head to abdominal circumference ratios. This is why, or at least has been suggested, why this altered fetal body shape habitus is responsible for the higher incidence of shoulder dystocia seen in newborns of women with diabetes. So here's a take-home point. For these women with either impaired glucose tolerance or true gestational diabetes, and obviously for those with pre-existing diabetes, regardless of birth weight, newborns of women with diabetes have an increased risk of shoulder dystocia, clavicular fracture, and brachial plexus injury. Again, that's regardless of birth weight because of this anthropomorphic fat distribution that gives them big football shoulders and little head. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. An accurate diagnosis of macrosomia can only be made by weighing the newborn after birth. The prenatal prediction of newborn birth weight is very imprecise. Although published formulas for estimated fetal weight show a correlation with birth weight, the variability of these estimates are about 20% with most of the formulas. So although ultrasound is traditionally used, remember that its accuracy in predicting macrosomia is actually quite poor. Now, MRI has been actually shown to have a higher sensitivity and specificity than ultrasound, but given its cost and its discomfort, as well as its size limitations for obese women, further study is needed to determine the appropriate clinical use of MRI to determine the presence of macrosomia. Now, here's a cool clinical pearl because I think it's kind of amazing. Those women who have delivered before, in other words, Paris women, appear to be able to predict the weight of their newborns as well as clinicians who use ultrasound or clinical palpation maneuvers. So if she's delivered before, just ask her how much she thinks the baby weighs. In terms of maternal morbidity, labor protraction and arrest disorders are much more frequent with macrosomic infants, and almost all of the indications for C-section are due to labor abnormalities. Of course, there's also the risk for postpartum hemorrhage, chorioamnionitis, and significant vaginal lacerations. Now, there's also the shared morbidity of shoulder dystocia, which is a shared morbidity between the maternal and the fetal compartment. 
for fetal morbidity, macrosomia increases the risk of shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia occurs about 0.2 to 3% of all vaginal deliveries, and the risk increases to up to 14% when the birth weight is more than 4,500 grams. Now, in the presence of maternal diabetes, a birth weight of 4,500 grams has been associated with rates of shoulder dystocia ranging from 20 to 50%. The fetal injuries most commonly associated with macrosomia and shoulder dystocia are fracture of the clavicle and damage to the nerves of the brachial plexus, specifically C5 and C6. This produces Herb Duchenne's muscular paralysis. Fracture of the clavicle complicates about 0.4 to 0.6% of all births and typically resolves without permanent sequelae. Now, for macrosomic newborns, the risk of clavicular fracture, though, is increased about tenfold. It's important to note that although macrosomia clearly increases this risk, most instances of shoulder dystocia occur unpredictably among newborns of normal birth weight, and most macrosomic newborns do not experience shoulder dystocia. Alright, let's review the issue of brachial plexus injury. Brachial plexus palsy can occur in the absence of shoulder dystocia or even with cesarean birth. So, brachial plexus does not mean it's not a pathognomonic finding for shoulder dystocia. Most cases of brachial plexus palsy resolve without permanent disability. Other large case series confirm that 80 up to 90% of cases of brachial plexus palsy will resolve by one year of age. Persistent injury is more common with birth weights that are above 4,500 grams. Macrosomia also carries the additional morbidity of increased rates of depressed 5-minute APGAR score, hypoglycemia, respiratory problems, polycythemia, meconium aspiration, and increased rates of admission and prolonged admission to the neonatal intensive care unit. Macrosomic newborns are also more likely than normal weight newborns to be overweight and obese later in life. Well, it would be terrible if there wasn't any kind of way to try to prevent macrosomia from occurring, but there are some things. Interventions shown to reduce macrosomia include exercise during pregnancy, low glycemic diet in women with GDM, and pre-pregnancy bariatric surgery in women with class 2 or class 3 obesity. All right, now let's talk about exercise because a meta-analysis of 15 high-quality randomized controlled trials did find that for programs that were exercise only as opposed to exercise plus other interventions actually helped reduce macrosomia by 39%. A subgroup analysis showed that combining more than one type of exercise further reduced the odds of macrosomia. Small for gestational age and preterm delivery were not increased. These studies add further evidence of the benefit of exercise during pregnancy. So women without contraindication should be encouraged to engage in aerobic and strength conditioning exercises during pregnancy to reduce the risk of macrosomia. Now, in women without diabetes, dietary interventions that do not include exercise have been shown to only have modest to no beneficial effect in preventing macrosomia. Now, for women with diabetes, remember that control of maternal hyperglycemia reduces the risk of macrosomia. So, maternal glucose management is recommended for pregnancies complicated by diabetes. According to published data, the combination of diet and exercise can result in up to a 15% reduced risk of macrosomia. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, now as we start to get ready to wrap this up, let's talk about labor abnormalities in the patient with suspected macrosomia. Labor abnormalities have been associated with shoulder dystocia in some, but not all, studies, and these abnormalities occur too frequently to be useful predictors. Likewise, models that combine risk factors have not reliably predicted shoulder dystocia or brachial plexus injury. However, some studies have shown that the combination of a macrosomic newborn with a birth weight of 4,500 in addition to labor arrest is significantly associated with shoulder dystocia. All right, podcast family, so here's a clinical pearl and here's a relevant clinical application. If you're an L&D and you suspect that your patient has a fetal weight of 4,500 grams or more and there's a prolonged second stage of labor or arrest of descent in the second stage above 2 plus, according to the college, that's an indication for cesarean birth. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. Now, if this kid is like at plus 2, why can't you do a vacuum or a forceps? Well, whether to conduct an operative vaginal delivery in cases of suspected macrosomia is yet another important consideration. Observational studies consistently have demonstrated an increased risk of shoulder dystocia when a macrosomic fetus is delivered using forceps or vacuum extraction. Okay, here's yet another clinical pearl, and remember this. This is right out of that practice bulletin. The risk of shoulder dystocia at the time of operative vaginal delivery increases when more than one risk factor is present. For example, with an LGA newborn, diabetes, and the use of vacuum, when they're all present, the odds ratio is 33. So the clinician should have a heightened awareness for shoulder dystocia in these situations, although judicious use of operative vaginal delivery is reasonable even when risk factors are present. But the patient should be counseled regarding these risks and caution should be exercised and preparation should be made for the possibility of encountering shoulder dystocia. All right, let's talk about C-sections as a way to try to prevent shoulder dystocia. Cesarean birth reduces but does not eliminate the risk of birth trauma and neonatal brachial plexus injury. Although the prediction of macrosomia is imprecise, scheduled C-section may be beneficial for newborns with suspected macrosomia who have an estimated fetal weight of at least 5,000 grams in women without diabetes and 4,500 grams in women with diabetes. Now, it's important to remember, though, that given the absence of randomized clinical trials, planned cesarean section for suspected macrosomia is controversial and it's based on expert opinion. And our last topic is a trial of labor after C-section. According to the college, it's appropriate for patients, OBGYNs, and other healthcare providers to consider past and current predicted birth weights when making decisions regarding labor after cesarean. However, according to the college, suspected fetal macrosomia is not a contraindication to labor after cesarean. All right, podcast family, all this came about because this morning we had a simulation on shoulder dystocia and a brief didactic on macrosomia. So that led us to this podcast. We have covered the ACOG practice bulletin number 216 from January of 2020. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.